Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. My guest today is Maurice Rosabi, who has written a book on Kublai Khan and a general history of the Mongols, published by Oxford University Press. And this week, we are just going to discuss some Mongol history, and we're going to just just Genghis Khan. I'm sorry, I cannot resist doing that Star Trek reference. But anyway, let's begin with talking about how did you get into Mongol history in the first place? How did I get into it? Uh, I got into mm-hmm. it through Chinese history. Uh, and uh, I did some work uh, in traditional Chinese foreign relations and got into, of course, the uh, neighboring areas and realized that there had never been a biography of Kublai Khan. Uh, and since I knew Chinese and since I knew some of the Middle Eastern languages, those are the two primary sources on Kublai Khan. And uh, that provided me the basis for writing a book on on the subject. Uh, it turned out uh, b- because of Marco Polo, who mentions Kublai Khan, and one of the main characters uh, in Marco Polo's book is Kublai, and uh, the Samuel Taylor Coleridge poem about Xanadu, uh, which mentions Kublai Khan, that it became quite popular and sold Quite, quite a few copies. And then I got really interested more and more in, in Mongolian history, per se. And that uh, moved me forward, not just to the Chinese aspect of, of, of the Mongols, but Mongolian history. And I began to be fascinated by the environment of Mongolia, which is uh, truly remarkable and uh, difficult, arduous, an arduous lifestyle. Uh, it, it's made up the, the uh, it's one of the northernmost cultures in the world. And so you have devastating winters in uh, in Mongolia, which explains a lot of Mongolian history, as we'll as we'll try to figure out why Chinggis Khan arose and why Chinggis Khan moved forward. A lot of it had to do with, with environmental issues that, that plagued the Mongols. The winters are devastating. And so in order to survive sometimes and and, and in order for the animals to survive, they have to move in a different direction. Uh, In terms of the environment, uh, the central part of Mongolia is the so-called steppe land. That's where the grasses are. You cannot have agriculture there. It's too cold. The growing season for plants is too too, uh, limited. And so uh, the basic kind of economy is based on animals uh, and five animals in particular, the most important being sheep. 
Uh, goats are important as well. But uh, in terms of the economy, the sheep are the most uh, significant. Then, of course, uh, as they have uh, an animal-centered economy, they move more and more towards uh, domesticating the horse, uh, domesticating camels, and domesticating ca uh, horses in particular is was vital for Mongolian history because it gave them what turned out to be their most important weapon, and that was the cavalry. Uh, without the cavalry and without their ability to domesticate horses, they would not have been as, as important a force, a military force in the world. But uh, you may want to intrude here, and, and I don't want to dominate uh, the, our conversation. No, 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 that's fine. Don't worry. I like it. Um, so, so let's talk about one of the most essential sources, and that is, of course, this secret history, or, or as I like to call it, the not-so-secret history anymore. But, you know, but it was secret at the time, and it was kept hidden for a long time. And So let's talk about the essential of secret history, or how important it is for understanding mm -hmm. Genghis Khan. Sure. Well, the Mongols did not have a written language till Chinggis Khan came on the scene. Uh, Chinggis commissioned uh, the development of a written Mongolian uh, by one of his uh, one of his scribes, and that led to the first effort to bring together uh, Mongol legends, Mongol history, and uh, it that effort led to the creation of the secret history of the Mongols. Uh, it, uh, because it was secret, it was not really rediscovered till the 19th century. Uh, for, for 600 years or so, uh, very few people, or in fact, nobody knew about the secret history. It was only re rediscovered in the 19th century. And then it took quite a while. It was difficult to translate. Uh, and, uh, it eventually, it's only in terms of translations, the most uh, important one was only done in the 21st uh, century by a man named Igor Derashevitz, uh a detailed uh, translation of the work with identifying the, the leading characters, identifying the terms used, and so on and so forth. But the general picture was known before then, of course. There were earlier translations. Uh, it's it's a mixture of myth, of history, uh, and it provides one of the few primary sources on, on the Mongols, uh, and particularly on the life of Chinggis Khan. Uh, tends to be reliable, but there are sections of it which are mythological and uh, legendary. So one has to be careful in terms of using it for reliable history. Um, it tends to have a particular point of view uh, about Chinggis and uh, it, it, it uh, plays him up as a, as a more important figure, uh, as well as a major figure in, in world history. And that's, that's really true. Uh, but there are sections of it that, that have to be uh, evaluated carefully for reliability and for accuracy. But it's it's full of interesting legends. It's full of stories. It's not your typical history. It's a 
anecdote a lot of it is anecdotal and lots of fun um and i think some of the translations be, um bring that together there is some speculation on who actually wrote the history because as the recent, most recent translation of it suggests that it had to be someone close to Chinggis Khan because you know there weren't as was mentioned there were too many were able to write at the time so there is I think there is mainly three persons I don't remember the names but there are mainly three persons surrounding Chinggis that should have possibly written but I think also again the author of the recent translation of the secret history, he kind of ruled that out as well because there is him and he gives some some perfectly fine reasons for this, but there is again we do not know who has written the secret history either. No, no, that, that's absolutely correct. Uh, there is uh, speculation as to who wrote the secret history, and a number of candidates have been suggested, but uh, even Derashevitz. Uh, the leading scholar on on the secret history didn't come to a final conclusion. He speculated uh, on uh, on the the writer and speculated on the reasons that the work was was created. Uh, it was created in a sense to uh, legitimize the Mongols uh, and uh, make them a uh, an uh, an acceptable force in 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 Asia during that time period and provide them with opportunities to uh, consider themselves the equals kind of of, of uh, the Chinese or the other great civilizations of, of, of Asia at that time. Um, there, there have been lots of translations. One of the most translated books in, in world literature, uh, there have been Hungarian translations, Japanese translations, English translations, French translations, it's uh, everybody gets a, a different perspective on them. Um, and it provides one of the sources on Genghis. It's not the only one. There are Persian works, uh, Persian histories. This was a great era in Persian writing. And the Persians had a particular point of view about Genghis. Uh, and uh, one of the great works about Genghis, which is probably as authentic and as reliable as the secret history was written by a Persian historian. Mm. So there are a number of texts and there are, there are Chinese sources. There are others that, um, you know, add to the information that's provided in the secret history. So let's begin with the birth of Temujin, as it was called early on. And some scholars said the place is birth around 1162, and let's talk about his upbringing and, uh, and growing up in the Mongol society. And again, in the secret history, his mother does seem to be playing a huge part of right. the secret history. I, I remember reading that there is this story where she took her breast out of something and told them that each of you sucked on these breasts when they were young and then, you know, tried to teach them a lesson that they are. I don't know, and then, then it's a while since I read it, but it, Rather amusing story and how she tried to nurture them by, you know, taking out some well, breasts and saying that each of you had sucked on these breasts. Sure, sure. There, there are lots of little anecdotes and stories about about this, and some are quite quite fun. Uh, the uh, as to Chinggis himself, he was born as you say in 1162, probably, uh, and was born part to the lower nobility, not 
to the upper levels of Mongol society at that point. There's a time, what made him important was he brought the Mongols together because uh, in, when he was born, there were continuous struggles among the Mongols uh, over land, pasture land, over water rights, all sorts of things. And uh, the, the Mongols were fragmented. What, uh, what he created was for the first time unity among the Mongols. That probably is his most important uh, contribution to the Mongols. You know, we think of Chinggis Khan as a great conqueror. He didn't conquer very much. Uh, he, he, uh, the conquests that occurred were really in the second and third generations. All of the conquests like China, uh, Russia, uh, Middle East, occurred during the time of his sons and grandsons, not Genghis's time. So he was not a great conqueror. He's often referred to as Genghis the Conqueror, but actually his most important contribution is unity. Uh, the stories about him, how much, uh, there are lots of little stories. Uh, one of the stories that indicates that he came from the lower nobility was the fact that he was married off at the age of eight or nine but instead of the wife coming to his household, he went to the wife's household, an indication that he was achieving social mobility. By uh, usually the usual pattern, if you have uh, a marriage, was that the uh, girl would be brought to the uh, boy's household and live there. But in this case, Chinggis was taken or as he was known at that point, Timujin, Chinggis is a title, Timujin went at the age of eight or nine to his uh, intended uh, for marriage and would live with them and would live in a, in a better environment than he was brought up in, uh, in higher status and so on. Uh, and the father brought him. The father on the way back was assassinated. And at that point, uh, Timujin had to return to his uh, original family uh, in order to uh, take care of his mother, take care of some of his uh, siblings. And so he was separated from his intended for some years. Uh, stories uh, in the secret history don't always portray him in a positive light. Uh, there is one story where he had a, a kind of disagreement about uh, food and other questions with one of his half-brothers. And uh, he, instead of resolving the, the dispute peacefully, he went out when his half-brother was fishing and uh, took a bow and arrow and shot his half-brother dead. Uh, something you wouldn't think of as very heroic, and yet it's included in the secret history. So not not all of his traits are regarded as positive in the secret history. That's why it, it can be thought of as more reliable, perhaps, than other uh, historical accounts of great heroic figures. In any case, uh, his mother is appalled at what he has done, but she can't do anything about it. She's not going to uh, 
uh, uh, throw him out or anything, but she uses it, the incident, as a means of pointing out that unity is most important in survival in the Mongolian, uh, in the difficult Mongolian steplands. And she emphasizes this to him, and she uh, emphasizes a concept of so-called anda, A-N-D-A, a Mongolian term meaning blood brotherhood. You form blood brotherhoods with other people, and uh, that way uh, you're better off, you and your blood brother are better off, and unity becomes a cardinal aspect of Chinggis's early life. That doesn't always mean that he sticks to the Anda. Uh, when he feels that the Anda is moving away or when he believes that he's more powerful than the Anda, he sometimes severs that connection. But he builds up a whole series of groups that are loyal to him uh, through the Anda institution. And by the time you get into the late 12th century, uh, when he's in his 30s, he's become a very prominent figure in Mongolia with a powerful military force. Again, there are myths about his military achievements. Most of the uh, military uh, aspects had already been devised by nomadic peoples. Uh, the use of the horse and the use of cavalry, shooting uh accurately while you're riding at full speed on a horse. Uh, a lot of tactics and strategy were, had been devised much earlier. So he, again, he not a, not a major military innovator. He was much more of an organizational and administrative person. Um, and perhaps you want to intercede here. No, that's fine. Then go on, please. Yeah. Um, well, um, what made him um, powerful was also uh, his, his uh, abandoning the idea of a hierarchy. Instead of choosing and selecting men based upon their role in the nobility and their role in the hierarchy, he based his selection of men in his military on merit a very different kind of approach than had been the case with many of the Mongol units and many of the Mongol troops before that time. So somebody from a lower class background who showed himself to be brave or courageous or uh, skilled in one form or another uh, would be uh, would be helped by Genghis and would be in incorporated uh, and advanced in his uh, in his uh, unit. In addition, he was quite willing to use foreigners. Uh, when he realized that foreigners had particular skills, um, such as using catapults, using uh, in, in in attacks on cities, um, and using siege engines again in attacks on cities was quite willing to recruit them and give them high positions in the uh, in, in the Mongol hierarchy. So that, uh, that again, those kinds of administrative decisions um, made him what he was. 
not so much his his military innovations, uh, but his administrative uh, and organizational patterns. Uh, And he actually wanted to establish rule, not just conquest, not just attacking, but the areas that he did incorporate, he wanted to establish a government. That was different from earlier nomadic pastoral groups who simply got what they wanted, got the treasures they wanted uh, uh, during attacks that they made against uh, foreigners and went back uh, and did not really start any sort of uh, organized uh, governmental structure. Chinggis left behind him a, a pattern of organization. He wanted to move beyond conquest. And in order to do that, he developed policies that um, made it possible to uh, do so, to to uh, become a ruler of a eventually a multi-ethnic, multi-linguistic empire. He set the stage for his sons and grandsons to uh, conquer and establish role, uh, establish control over the largest contiguous land empire in world history, stretching all the way from Korea, through China, through Central Asia, through the Middle East, through Russia. Uh, And they actually reached all the way to Hungary. They abandoned Hungary, but uh, they defeated the Hungarians uh, in 1241. But... uh, they uh, basically created an empire that no one else has ever uh, established based upon these principles that Chinggis set up. And and most of them were were administrative, not military necessarily. Do you want me to discuss some of the uh, administrative or policy? Uh, Yes, and I want to add as well, I believe that in his latest book, The Earth Transformed, Peter Frankopan as well contributed to climate change was an essential part of yeah. you know, favor that, that sure. was in favor of Genghis Khan's conquest. Yeah, the cl- climate change did have an impact uh, on... Uh, there are two things that happened in the late 12th and early 13th century centuries that uh, prompted the Mongols to move from Mongolia and to begin their conquests b- both to the south and uh, to the West. One was uh, from 1190 to about 1210, there was a a drop in the annual mean temperature of Mongolia, which meant that the growing season was cut short. Less grass for the animals, fewer plants for the animals. The animals would have died without some sort of movement. Uh, they couldn't survive in Mongolia because of the, the, the reduction in, in plants at that point. Subsequently, after 1210 to 1220, the time when the conquest began, things began to change. Uh, much more precipitation, uh, more plants, and the horses in particular could consume uh, had the ability to consume more 
plants were fattened up and could be ready for conflict and for warfare. So on the one hand, you have a period of decline in terms of the plants from 1190 to about 1210. Then when you're set to begin conquests to the east and to the west and and south, you have a much more robust plant uh, structure, which helps you and uh, allows the horses. The horses have to consume a tremendous amount in order to survive and in order to be ready for conflict, for warfare. So when that happened throughout Mongolia and Central Asia, when the climate changed and uh, was more favorable, the uh, the conquests were much easier, but were facilitated. And so on the one hand, you have decline, forcing them to move. On the other hand, subsequently, you have the ability to move as a result of uh, a, a more favorable uh, precipitation, a more favorable environment. And that's really what uh, what uh, led to the the beginnings of the conquest uh, in the in the uh, in the West and, and in China as well. I, I want to go back a little bit. I'm so, sorry for interrupting you, but you know, uh, well, before we talk a little bit about the conquest, I'm going to talk about that more about them in a bit. But I want to talk about the unification of Mongolia as well and how the how how the unification of Mongolia happened and how we eventually led yep. to get the name of Genghis Khan. Well. Uh, Genghis, uh, as I said, uh, used the institution of Handa, blood brotherhood, to bring people under his under his control. He was recognized as a as a superior figure by many in, individuals. Many were were uh, attracted by by the fact that he emphasized merit as a means of recruiting officials, and so. They were uh, attracted by th- by that concept, uh, and as he uh, organized people for the first time in a specific way, in units of about ten, uh, up to the unit of about ten thousand, he used that as an organizational pattern uh, for his troops and appointed one of his sons or a very loyal uh, figure as the leader of each ten thousand man unit. In some cases, they weren't 10,000. Some cases, they were 8,000 or um, 12,000, whatever. But the 10,000-man idea was critical to uh, the development of his strategy. And uh, the head of of each 10,000 unit determined uh, gains, determined uh, rewards uh, to the the members of the the 10,000. Uh, and was absolutely loyal to to Timujin. Uh, in the end, all of this structure led in twelve o four and twelve o six, twelve o six in particular, to his being granted the title of Genghis Khan. Uh, and it used to be thought that the title meant. Khan of all within the oceans, but more thick, more recent thinking is that it that it really meant ferocious 
or powerful Khan, not so much all of the, all of the oceans. Uh, and, and by that point, by 1206, he had set up this system of 10,000s that uh, worked kind of brilliantly uh, for him and meant that uh, you had a loyal contingent that supported all of his efforts. Um, so when he became Genghis, he was really, he was confident that he could depend upon uh, these various segments of the Mongol Empire as uh, as part of his own, uh, the Mongol territory as part of his own. And uh, that allowed him that kind of loyalty, uh, which was enforced. I mean, there was, there were uh, rewards and punishments for uh, for those who joined him uh, if they tried to break away or if they didn't follow orders there were very severe punishments that were inflicted on those who who uh, disobeyed orders from from the great khan some cases it would be death uh, execution if they did so so it was not just rewards there were, there were punishments allocated to uh, to those who uh, joined his forces. Uh, by the time you get into 1206, uh, he's got the largest force in Mongolia. Uh, he's provided absolutely uh, important training in cavalry warfare to, uh, to his troops. He uses the traditional strategy and tactics that were developed by nomads uh, from time immemorial. And uh, the result was that he had this very powerful force. The, the one thing that you have to remember, though, was that he developed policies also that attracted non-Mongols. Without the non-Mongols and without the support of people like the Uyghurs, Uyghur Turks. I don't know if you know about them. Mm, yeah. The Uyghurs are Turkic people who were among the first to develop a written language of the nomadic pastoral groups. And the Uyghur uh, writing system is the basis of the Mongolian writing system. Uh, when he started, when uh, Chinggis began to develop a government, he needed Uyghurs who were literate to help him in setting up a tax system, in setting up censuses. And so without uh, the foreigners, the Mongol Empire would not have taken place, would not have succeeded. So it was critical for him to recruit and uh, use non-Mongols in setting up uh, the structure that he would eventually leave to his descendants. So it's... The Mongols alone could not have succeeded. Uh, they, they needed foreign help. And so one of the things he transmitted to his sons and, and uh, grandsons was use foreigners. Use foreigners who are loyal. When Kublai Khan took over all of China, uh, there were 75 million Chinese and less than half a million Mongols. He absolutely needed to get the support of Chinese in order to rule China. Uh, and so uh, the government 
of of China during that time, a lot of it was run by Chinese, not by Mongols. The Mongols were in total charge, but they couldn't have succeeded without Chinese help. And that principle of using foreigners, recruiting foreigners, <coughs> um, came about through Genghis's ideas. As, as I said, his administrative uh, uh, innovations were the ones that really were critical in terms of um, the, the development of a Mongol empire. So that was really important. Uh, they, they, As they moved farther and farther west and conquered more and more, they used Persians, they used Russians, uh, they used Turkic peoples, really to help them rule this multi-ethnic, multi-linguistic empire. Without the support of these foreigners, there would have been no Mongol empire. Uh, critical, a critical insight that uh, Chinggis Khan had, and that was followed up by his uh, descendants and allowed them so, to rule. So let's talk about the beginning of the conquest. It's about him been but earlier, but let's talk about expanding from Mongolia no, and from Mongolia. expanding their beginning of the empire. Sure. Uh, the first... Uh, and, and so, I'm sorry for the, the interruption, but I just... Before we do this, I want as well to talk about tactics of the Mongol army and what will later become. Where they call the Golden Horde at this point, and so let's talk about military and oh, the military. tactics that they use. For, before we go into the conquest, I want to go back a little bit further. Sure. So let's talk a little bit about this before. Sure. The uh, the military. Uh, every Mongol male was eligible for the military, uh, and remained eligible for the military till the age of about 60. So they were trained very early on uh, in horsemanship, for example. Uh, you, you see that even today. Uh, one of the, there is a holiday in Mongolia in July where there are three contests, wrestling, horseback riding, uh, and uh, archery. The horseback riding event, the horse race, is for children under the age of eight. Oh. They could get on the horse and really, really uh, race. I mean, they really do over uh, lots of kilometers. So that's a tradition that uh, was initiated, uh, you know, very early on. Kids were put on horses at a very early uh, very early childhood. Uh, and I've seen kids in Mongolia riding in a horse at the age of three or uh, or so. So that was one very important element, probably the most important element uh, in terms of the army. They had to be competent on, on horses. Bow and arrow. The, uh, the Mongols were, were taught archery and uh, they developed a, sp a specific kind of bow and arrow that had a range much longer than the, the so-called longbow in Europe at that point, about a double of the range of, of a double or perhaps even triple of the range of uh, uh, that, that the Europeans had. They had a crossbow that had a range of about 250, 300 feet. And uh, 
the most that the, the longbow had at that point was about 100 and 100, 125 feet. So that gave them a tremendous advantage in archery or in combat uh, with uh, foreigners uh, that they engaged in. Let me just stop for a minute. I want to get some water. Uh, yeah, of course, I'll just put the, the break for a second and I'll be right back after this. And we're back. Okay. Um, the uh, So those two skills were vital. Uh, being able to ride and uh, without any inhibitions, without any impediments, was number one. Number two was uh, the ability to shoot a bow and arrow uh, at a f while riding at a fast clip. Uh, that, again, was unique to the Mongols. Most uh, archers in other parts of the world had to remain stable in one location, one particular ground, one particular area uh, to shoot their, their bows and arrows. The Mongols could do it while riding at full speed. So that, gave, again, gave them a considerable advantage. Um, they were then uh, trained. The way that the training occurred was in a so-called nerge, spelled N-E-R. G-E, N-E-R-G-E. They would come together in a circle and surround a group of animals. Uh, and the idea was to uh, capture and kill the animals as a means of training soldiers. Hunting was, uh, particularly in, in wintertime, was thought of uh, as a means of uh, uh, of training the military forces. And this nerge was used uh, throughout the winter. Um, and if you showed, uh, if you showed any cowardice uh, as you met a, uh, an animal rushing for you uh, and tried to escape, uh, you were not going to be accepted by Genghis as part of his military force, and in some cases you might be punished. So uh, the traits that were essential for warfare were uh, mandated in in terms of the hunting, in terms of the narrative that they went through. So there are all sorts of uh, uh, elements that preceded warfare. You needed to be well-trained in order to become part of Chinggis's uh, forces. And you needed to accept uh, orders, uh, and, and uh, even if it meant putting yourself in grave danger, um, you had to accept what you were told in, in combat in order to be accepted. Uh, and so um, that was a critical part of, of the whole element of, uh, of being a part of the military force. Uh, everybody was part of the military force and every male. And that meant basically when they went on campaign, what that does, of course, is to make women particularly important. If you go off and have total male mobilization, kids, even kids as the, at the age of 12 or 13, you need somebody to take care of the economy. You need somebody to take care of the animals. And so women could do it. 
uh, and they, there were many prominent women among the, the Mongols who played a very important role uh, in uh, the success of the Mongols. Uh, the women could take care of the animals uh, and some of them could even, even took part in warfare. Uh, there was one renowned woman, a uh, cousin uh, or niece actually of Kublai Khan who's played up in all of the sources and is mentioned in Marco Polo, who was a kind of female Amazon who would not marry until she was defeated in a contest by, uh, by a prospective suitor. Uh, and uh, they would have to uh, bet a hundred horses to take her on in a wrestling match or in a uh, archery competition and so on. According to Marco, she accumulated 10,000 horses uh, as, as part of this. She, she was quite remarkable. One last uh, figure, a Mongol prince, uh, bet a thousand horses to take her on and defeat her and marry her. The, the night before the contest, the parents, her parents came in and uh, urged her to allow herself to be defeated. She didn't, she wouldn't agree with that. She won. And uh, the, the prince went, oh, had to give up his thousand horses. That was what uh, was uh, the ideal for women, being able to replace the men and being able to uh, play an important role in the economy and in warfare. And the result was that women had more rights among the Mongols than any people in Europe, in, in Asia at that point, and probably in Europe. Uh, they had the right to own property, which was remarkable in Asia at that time. Uh, they had the right to own the animals, uh, which was really unique, and also to have land as the as the Mongols took in more and more land. Uh, Kublai Khan's mother, for example, uh, had an enormous amount of land uh, in northern China that was granted to her. Uh, by, by the Mongol court. So women were extremely important uh, in this uh, whole enterprise. And that's something that's just been recognized by, uh, by scholars uh, of the Mongol era. There are more and more books now on prominent women uh, who played a role in, in the survival and the success of the Mongols. Um, the, uh, I, mean, I'm a, I mean, if you... It's the all the men, right, leave for campaign and you're only woman that you have to defend yourself, right? If there is a foreign invasion while the men are drawn They'd have to be able to. Yeah, exactly. So they had military skills as well. They were trained. They could ride horses as well, and they could shoot bows and arrow. Uh no question about it. So uh the the women were in a uh, we're giving... I mean, imagine how easy prey it would have been for foreigners to do this in Asia if they did, weren't trained militarily or you just were left alone and all the guys were out campaigning. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, they had to be uh, self-confident and they had to be uh, able to defend themselves. Absolutely. So it's quite important. And by having that, they could also, of course, uh, uh, be... 
have rights that women in other locations, they didn't have bound feet. For example, the Chinese women at that point had their feet bound and their mobility was very limited. Mongol women, nothing like that. Uh, they, uh, in fact, they had to have mobility in, in order to survive in the in the steppe lands. So uh, there's quite a difference between uh, the Mongol women in Japan, uh, Mongol women and Japanese women, Korean women, uh, Chinese women. Um, so I, I think that's sometimes ignored, but is is a byproduct of uh, the Mongol kind of lifestyle, and was accepted by Genghis. His mother. He idolized his mother. He idolized his wife. Uh, and uh, often his wife would take a role in policymaking decisions. Uh, the same with his sons and grandsons. Uh, his uh, One of his grandsons who took over Persia, uh, conquered Persia, had a Christian wife, an historian Christian wife, who played a very important role in policies in Persia. Kublai Khan's wife in China had a, an important role. So it's something we can't ignore. We think of the Mongols mostly as marauders, as male-oriented, but they couldn't have succeeded without uh, uh, women uh, and the, uh, the ability of women to play an important role in all of this. I think that's critical. That, you let me nicely in there because I want to talk about one of perhaps the biggest myths in the world, and that is, of course, most people think that, oh, I'm probably descendants of Genghis Khan at some point, because he has so many infidelities, supposedly, that everyone is most likely to have some mongrel descent, or so they like to yeah. say, but I, mean, let's, I, I think that's more or less a myth, so let's talk about it's a little it. bit exaggerated. He had, had kind of this, so many infidelities, and so many kids around him. Yeah, there's a lot of exaggeration, of course, because the Mongols did carve out this enormous empire, it took over lots of different territories and obviously uh, raped or intermarried and uh, had obviously a lot of children. Uh, it's hard to tell who, who was a direct descendant of Genghis Khan. We don't have his DNA. Uh, we don't We don't know where he was buried, actually, whether he was buried or not. We don't have any tools for being able to judge uh, whether somebody's a direct descendant of, of Genghis Khan. Uh, we can I say, mean, wouldn't that DNA have died out by now in a way that it's thousand yeah. years in? Yeah, absolutely. So it'd be difficult to, to uh, determine. Nobody knows where. Uh, there are lots of theories about his death. One theory was that a uh, very prominent one that uh, came up about 25 years after his death in Chinese sources was he died and he was taken. He died in Central Asia, away from Mongolia, and he was transported thousands of miles uh, to northeastern Mongolia, where he, a, a tomb was erected for him. Um, and everybody en route was slaughtered, so there'd be no way to find out where he was taken. The group that took him uh, and, and along with him uh, were taken 40 women and 40 uh, horses who were uh, executed at the, at the site of the tomb uh, that he would need. Uh, 
uh, in the afterlife. Uh, and those who, the guards who came out were also killed. That probably is a myth. Um, the, uh, they, they didn't know how to preserve bodies. And so to, so to take Chinggis's body across in the summer, all the way thousands of miles to Northeast Mongolia, would not probably have worked. The usual, Igor, the uh, best biographer of Chinggis, uh, thinks that what happened was uh, they, they had not set up a tomb culture yet. They weren't like the Chinese or Persians to bury their dead in elaborate ways. Uh, and they had this feeling of, of the connection between man and animal. So they would let the body be consumed by the animals in a particular area. Uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, it's it's hard to figure out what happened. There are all sorts of, you know, legends and myths. And but to get back, you, you want to get back to how these these conquests began. Yeah. Well, the conquests began with a group in northwest China who controlled the Silk Road trade, who controlled the caravans that went from China to, towards the, the West. Uh, this group was demanding very stiff tariffs on any Mongolian cavalry that went through uh, their territory. Genghis was appalled by this, and the Mongols were appalled by this, and so they attacked this group. Uh, and they it was a kind of a standoff, but the group eventually supposedly submitted to the Mongols and uh, decreed that they would not uh, impose stiff taxes on the, on the, uh, on the caravan, stiff tariffs. So he got what he wanted. He did not occupy that territory. He went back to Mongolia. He got the economic uh, objective that, that he wanted and went back to uh, his territory. Next step, uh, the Mongols desperately need trade, particularly in, in bad winters when thousands and ten thousands of animals die. Uh, they can't get to the grass. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of snow or ice over the grasslands. The animals can't get to the life-preserving plants, and they die by the thousands and ten thousands. In that kind of situation, there's a, there's a food crisis for the Mongols, and they depend upon trade with China to get the goods they want, to get the, the food they desire. Also, they depend upon China for any manufactured craft goods that they need, nails, tents, anything. So trade is very important. When they're denied trade, they have to raid. They have to attack uh, the Chinese settlements. And that's what happened in the early 13th century. A group in northern China, that controlled northern China denied them trade. So the second campaign that Chinggis led was against the northern Chinese. That was a brutal and bloody campaign on both sides. Uh, but eventually, by 1215, he had defeated that group and uh, got what he wanted. That is, they... Uh, they uh, were willing to trade once again with the Mongols and provide them with the uh, the goods that they needed, food and other 
and other commodities. And the, the result was that he went back to Mongolia. He didn't occupy northern China at that point. He wasn't somebody who was a conqueror. Um, the third and last campaign, one of his caravans going through Central Asia was uh, stopped by a governor in a particular area and all 400 Mongols on the and Muslims on the caravan were executed. Uh, when Genghis learned about this, he sent an envoy, an embassy, to the leader of the whole area, the whole, and demanded that the governor be sent to him uh, for punishment. The leader had no idea who Genghis Khan was. Uh, he had no idea of the military force that Genghis had uh, set up, organized. And so he uh, executed one of the envoys uh, for being insolent and sent the others home. From the Mongol standpoint, that's the worst crime you could commit. The Mongols would never harm an ambassador. They would never harm a foreign envoy. And so this crime had to be avenged. That turned out to be the biggest of Chinggis's campaigns. Supposedly, he organized a contingent of about 200,000 troops. Probably an exaggeration. But still, there were quite a few troops that went on this campaign to Central Asia towards places like Samarkand, Bukhara, uh, and close to Afghanistan. Uh, they set forth in about 1219. It will be a four or five year campaign. Uh, both sides massacred each other. Uh, there were terrible massacres in Samarkand, Bukhara, other places, but eventually Chinggis emerged victorious. This time, because there had been such opposition, he decided to control the area. That was the only area he conquered, Central Asia. He uh, set up a government there under one of his sons and headed back to Mongolia. So that territory was the beginning of the Mongols' conquest uh, towards the West. Hmm. So, just talk a little bit about his death. It does become 65 years, which is quite old for that time. I'm sorry to leave. And, and, and in, I do believe in the secret history, it says that it fell from his horse back of his death, I think. And, but again, when you are that old, or 65, it's, and you ride on the horseback and been campaigning, it's, it's kind of, you know, understandable. It would, it, 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 it would be difficult to keep up on the horse all day at that age, yeah. I think. One, one day. You mean his death? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there are all sorts of legends. Uh, I mean, he probably died of old age. Uh, uh there is one legend that he, uh, got an arrow wound and, uh, was shot, uh, in the shoulder. It wasn't taken care of properly gangrene set in and that led to his collapse another one is is the one you pointed out about about the uh, fall from a horse uh it's so possible kind of 
and then yeah, and then at the age of sixty five, it's kind of sounds plausible that he wouldn't fall off the horse. But yeah, like to bring do do an analogy here. I think the same thing happened with Eric the Red when he died in the right. Viking Age that he also fell off the horse back and he was quite old. So it's kind of you know to do an analogy. Yeah, it could be a sense. narrative, a, a story, a narrative story. It's difficult to tell. Uh, I, I can't uh, come up with a, uh, with a real uh, sort of response to that. It's a, he died. There are lots of legends. One, uh, I was one in, once interviewed uh, in New York, where I live, uh, by a local public uh, radio station. And uh, we, t- we talked for about an hour on tape before the, the program, uh, talking as, as we as we've been talking about Genghis's life and and uh, his uh, his conquests, his uh, his all of his policies and so on. But the uh, the interviewer wanted something. Uh, he said, "Wasn't there something colorful about his death?" I said, "Well, there's a crazy story." Uh, about his death uh, makes no sense, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it. Um, you don't need to put it on the on the radio. Uh, he said that he had taken a, uh, a wife from one of the chieftains he had defeated. She didn't want to be taken, and so she placed a knife in her vagina. As they were having sex, he was killed by the knife. Um, well, that I was mean, a, that's a way to go as well. Crazy story, crazy story. Uh, that was the only thing he put on the radio, mm-hmm. and so people think of me as a as a pervert of some sort or other. Mm-hmm. It was a, a they play it all the time. Uh, every time there's a, a campaign uh, for to raise money for the for the station, every year or so they play this little excerpt of me talking about this crazy story uh, you know it's 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 a crazy story it, they're just crazy legends they're not accurate and uh, mm-hmm. the st- students who hear this sometimes uh, uh, where uh, I get responses from them uh, that uh, I have to somehow or other point out that it is a crazy story well, so mm. you have to be careful with with interviews. Yeah, but and and I'm not I'm not definitely not just gonna put that. Out. I'm gonna like edit this clip and just make it where you speak about the penis, the death of a vagina. So that's yeah. gonna be the whole episode. That will be the whole. Episode. <laughs> but but seriously, before we end the episode as well, I want to talk about succession because he has I did have quite a few. So, Children and one of the the one we now now know would succeed him would be Orchidae. So that's but was there a certain that Orchidae would be the one to succeed Genghis or was there a, as there all usually is in this sure. kind of situation a succession crisis? Well, that was to prove the succession to Genghis. The fact that he didn't work out a regular orderly system of succession was to prove one of the factors in the decline and fall of the Mongols. Uh, There are a number of different traditions um, among the Mongols for succession. One was younger brother, 
Uh, if the younger, if the older brother died, the younger brother would take power. Second was something called ultimogeniture. The youngest son of a ruler would become uh, the, the successor. The idea was that the older sons would have had times to time to establish themselves, to uh, have their own troops, to have their own uh, families and so on, that the youngest son needed the protection of the, uh, of the uh, father. Third, which was the one that was eventually chosen, was that the Mongol nobility would get together and choose a successor. Uh, and uh, it had to be a direct descendant of Chinggis, but it could be a son, it could be a grandson, it could be a nephew, um, and that created problems because different nobles would think somebody else was mer more meritorious than, than anybody that was chosen. And so there, there was a question of legitimacy for each successor. The only one where there was no conflict was Ugade. That is, uh, Chinggis himself decreed that Ugade would be the successor. But he didn't set this up as a regular <coughs> orderly system so that when Ugade died in 1241, there was a mess for five years. Uh, no ruler of the Mongol Empire at a time when it had reached a colossal uh, amount of territory and had taken over Russia, taken over Central Asia, North China. So it took a tremendous effort to restore order in 1246. And even then the Khan that with the great Khan that was chosen died two years later. And so there was another interregnum till 1251. In 1251, uh, uh, Kublai Khan's brother became the ruler for eight years. And then there would be conflict repeatedly so that really by 1260, there was no empire. There were four separate segments one in China and Korea. That was the original uh, kind of uh, Khanate. One in Central Asia, one in Russia called the Golden Horde, and one in Persia in the Middle East. There was no one leader who was in charge. And even within each of those segments, there was conflict because they had no regular system of succession. So Kublai Khan, for example, had to fight his brother in order to become the head of the uh, East Asian part of uh, of the Mongol domains. Uh, when Kublai died in 1294, over a period of 40 years, there would be nine separate Khans, none of them lasting more than five years. Two of them were murdered. Others were pushed aside. So the Mongols did themselves in by not having a regular orderly system of succession. The same thing happened in Persia. Same thing happened in Central Asia. Um, and of course, yeah, I do believe at some point you get the term Crimean Khanate as well. Yeah, yeah, same problem. Same problem. And 
the uh, it, uh, that pretty much did them in. Uh, in addition, uh, there was one other problem that, that arose. Some of the Mongols became very uh, captivated by the civilization that they ruled, came fascinated by China, fascinated by Persia, and began to adopt some features or some institutions of China and and uh, Persia, whatever, whatever, wherever they were, and that put them at a, odds. It put them at odds with people who wanted to maintain the traditional Mongol values and traditional Mongol structure, and did not want to be polluted by Chinese values, by Chinese institutions. So that kind of struggle went on, and that kind of conflict leading to warfare in some cases between traditionalists and those who accepted uh, other aspects of uh, Chinese or Persian civilization. So they did themselves in, basically. I do believe, I don't remember if this was in Genghis Khan's lifetime, but they did try to act at Japan at some point as well. Was there was there ever a chance that they would succeed in conquering Japan? Taking over Japan? Uh, that was in the time of Kublai Khan. Uh, the Mongols at that point had reached their territorial limits. They, they, they had taken over all the land from East Asia uh, westward. So expansion would have to be overseas. Uh, Kublai sent uh, an embassy to Japan to have them submit um, uh, you know, without any kind of conflict, without warfare, without sending an invasion group, the Japanese refused. And um, uh, Kublai took the next step. He sent a military force, uh, a naval force in 1274. Not well prepared. Not, uh, he didn't realize that he needed a, a well-organized group. They got near Japan. It was a, a bad storm. And the Korean uh, sailors convinced the Mongol commander to head back. So that first campaign ended uh, without actually combat. Kublai determined to set up a much bigger force. And he spent the next seven years doing that. They prepared a big armada and two invasion groups one coming from the north, one coming from the south, meeting uh, in a place in Japan uh, and uh, intending to uh, take over Japan militarily. What they didn't realize was at the time that they set forth was a time when typhoons were quite common. And so as they approached Japan, a typhoon erupted. Many of the Mongol ships were not uh, adequate to defend themselves against the typhoon. They were uh, not ocean vessels. They were not ocean-bearing vessels. They've been uh, built in lakes and rivers. A lot of the Mongol forces were drowned. Ships were sunk. And uh, the uh, Japanese... Only a few landed in Japan and were defeated by the uh, Japanese uh, samurai. Hmm. 
I mean, mentioned the secret history in the beginning of the podcast and throughout this episode, but preservation of the secret history, I don't remember if this was under Kublai Khan's era, but this because of the Chinese conquest and because the Mongol rule in China, that they, it was interpreted, preserved, and put into Chinese history of the Mongols yep. as well. That it's part of reasons why we have the secret history today, that the Chinese, they adapt. They not not adapted, but they took care of preserved the secret history. Sure, and they they uh, did preserve it, and they added to it from their point from their perspective in their uh, dynastic histories of the of the uh, dynasty, the Mongol dynasty that was set up, the so called Yuan dynasty, um, quite extensive. It, but it is from the Chinese perspective, not the Mongol perspective. So one has to be careful. In, in using it to uh, get, you know, a, a totally accurate and reliable history of the time period. It's 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 quite good in many ways, uh, but, you know, it, it has to be uh, keep, keep, keep it has to be kept in mind that uh, the uh, that it was written by the Chinese, not by the Mongols. And there are lots of other Chinese sources that describe the Mongols and the Mongol era. Again, in some cases, they're positive. In some cases, they're quite negative. Uh, and so one has to be, you know, selective in how to uh, use these sources. And so the one last thing I want to talk about as well yeah. is, is that, uh, yeah, one, one last thing I want to talk about as well sure. is the portrayal of Genghis Khan in pictures and Awkward because not all are, of course, too favorable in sure. in one way. I mean, that can be just the artwork of his time. But as, as someone pointed out, pointed out, Genghis Khan basically was a normal human being. He didn't look didn't look like you know the way we see him in some artwork for that portrayal. He didn't look like you and me, a normal man, normal size human being. I believe. Yeah, well, the the depictions of Genghis in in foreign sources can be very misleading uh in uh he's mentioned all over the world i mean the mongols probably are mentioned in more sources the mongol empire more written sources everything from armenian the whole armenian chronicles about, about i think the, they left their mark it's fair to say yeah they, uh, to say the least they did uh, and uh you know for the most part it's negative, no question about it. Uh, the Persians portray them negatively, uh, portray the Mongols negatively. Uh, the Russians also, uh, up through the Soviet period, up through the 20th century, portrayed him in a very, very negative light. Uh, and the, the, the Soviets had uh, considerable influence in Mongolia in the 20th century. So even the Mongols uh, from 1921 to 1990, when they were very heavily influenced by the Soviet Union, didn't portray him in a positive light. Uh, since then, there's been a reevaluation, and which has gone to the other extreme. So that uh, in Mongolia now, there's a Mongolian beer. There's a, a, a sorry, a Chinggis Khan beer. There's a Chinggis Khan hotel. Chinggis Khan is on the paper money. Uh, Chinggis Khan, there's a Chinggis Khan airport. He's portrayed in a, in a, a truly 
very, very positive light. And one has to be careful about that. Uh, then popular writers have portrayed him as a believer in democracy, uh, as a believer in international law, uh, as a believer in women's rights, and so on. One has to take that with a grain of salt. But it, it happens when, when, when you have when you go from one extreme to another, uh, from really negative to overly positive. And I've tried to st stay in the middle and, and tried to point out that he made important contributions to uh, world history, but that he also, of course, marauded, killed, massacred quite a few people. And uh, democracy is, is, is uh, not something that he necessarily believed in and international law is certainly not something he believed in was mongolian law so you know uh these things happen and uh it, it's hard to uh to regulate what happens in the popular media uh, but you know uh there's been a, a good reevaluation of the mongols over the past 20 or 30 years we, we've seen them play a, an important role in a variety of areas in uh, bringing the world together. This is the first time there is direct contact between Europe and China was brought about by the Mongols. Uh, the Mongols transmitted a, a lot of Chinese culture to the Middle East and to the West. Uh, they, they had, uh, I was part of an exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in 2002, which showed how the Mongols played an important role in transmitting Chinese art and, and Chinese motifs into Persian art and played an important role in uh, the renaissance of Persian art during that time period. So, you know, uh, there's been an, an effort to uh, reevaluate the Mongol era. You know, I, I, think. Uh, I, I covered the the Dome Hall earlier this year in March, yeah. February. I don't remember exactly when, but we talked about how the Pax Mongolica was a thing yeah. where you know the Silk Road was probably safer than it ever had been before under Mongol rule. We had this what we called in the episode just modern gas station sort of where you right. had some pit, pit stops, you know, for the people traveling the Silk Route and. You mentioned that that was negative life, but that was one of the contribution. And of course, you didn't mention it in the episode. But the mail system was fantastic under Mongol Empire. The mail delivery was out of this world. And I think it, that Genghis Khan contributed to the sure. absolutely, absolutely. And and uh, I think uh, this podcast has uh, your interest and. In, uh, and this is, uh, I think, is is a, a useful contribution to uh, a reevaluation or reconsideration of of the Mongols uh, in in a, in a positive light, but also mentioning the negative. So I'm delighted. Well, also, to that he did not die by vagina. Yeah. Well, it's nice to talk to you, and um, I'll um, hope to hear from you again. And before we go, thank you so much for coming. Um, do you have anything you want to promote? Any social media where people might find you, or where, where can people buy your books if they want to read more about Kublai Khan or the Mongol history? Sure. Uh, my, uh, I've done some studies uh, 
of, of the traditional Mongols. I'm, I'm now interested in modern Mongolia as well. But a Kublai Khan book, uh, which was taken up by the History Book Club in the United States and sold extremely well, it's a, it's a book meant for the general reader, not just for uh, experts. And I think uh, a general reader who's interested in history might find it of use. Um, the other book uh, uh, that's put out by the uh, Oxford University Press is part of a series that is meant for the ordinary reader. Uh, it, it's called The Mongols, uh, I think a, a beginner's guide or something like that. And it's about 100 pages on the Mongols and gives you a, a general uh, uh, vision of, of the Mongols. And those are the two that I would recommend if people are interested in uh, in, in uh, my own work. Um, the best biography of Chinggis is by, it, it's, I don't know if it's in print anymore, but it's it's a very good work. It's by Paul Rachnevsky, spelled R-A-T-C-H-N-E-V-S-K-Y, Rachnevsky. Uh, it's called Chinggis Khan, and it's reliable. And again, it's meant for a general audience. Um, it uh, was published a long time ago, in, in uh, I think in the 1980s or so. So it's not easily available, but uh, that's that's a work uh, that, that that's useful. The Secret History is available in many editions. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to Thank have you. you on the podcast. We, we are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts. If you are on Apple Podcasts, Consider writing a review of the podcast that I have preserved or not. We read out a review last episode in the part one of the Euler Claudian Dynasty, and I can read out your review as well if I see see your review written for the review. If you are on Spotify, give us five stars. If you listen on YouTube, like, share, and subscribe. This has been Well That Aged Well. My name is Alan, and I'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.